Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's podcast is going to be on the power of poop. I think Dr. Oz would be very interested in this. He used to talk about this a lot, especially when he was a guest on Oprah. I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with the term microbiome. And if you're not, essentially it's what I explain to my patients. It's the balance of the good and bad bacteria that live within us. The gastrointestinal tract is one of the major organs where our intake of food or medications affects the balance of these good and bad bacteria. Fact, there are 10 times more bacteria in our body than we have actual cells. And we have millions of cells in our body. So you can imagine we have billions of bacteria that are playing a role in our health. So where does the problem come in? Well, we now know that antibiotics, along with other drugs, chemicals in the environment, are proven disruptors of the microbiome. The most serious and dangerous disruptor or adverse reaction that can occur from antibiotics is an infection called Clostridia difficile. And that is actually caused by antibiotics, most commonly uh, medication called clindamycin. Clostridia difficile can cause severe, life-threatening, watery diarrhea and inflammation in the colon. Why is this happening? The antibiotics actually, we believe, wipe out the good bacteria and the bad ones take over. Today's smartest doctor in the room guest is Dr. Ari Grinspan. He is an assistant professor of medicine and gastroenterology at the Icon School of Medicine here in New York at Mount Sinai. Dr. Grinspan is an expert in fecal microbiota transplant. People have probably heard about this, fecal transplants. And he actually performed the first one at Mount Sinai here in New York. So he's a young doctor, but i really like to welcome him to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to a great discussion. Terrific. All right, Dr. Grinspan, the first thing I think has to be going through so many listeners' minds, and even my own, and I'm, I like to be very innovative in my practice, but how in the world did doctors come up with the idea of transferring feces from, you know, from one person to another to get healthier? Where did this come up from? So you're absolutely right. There's no question there's a big um, ick factor right. that is associated with a fecal transplant. But if you actually look at the data, this is not, this is not new. This has been around for almost 2,000 years. Wow. So the first mention of a fecal transplant is actually comes from 4th century China. Mm. And physicians or wise men or whatever you want to call them at that time used a fecal slurry to treat all different types of conditions. And there's text, there's documentation for this. Wow. And when you say fecal slurry, it almost sounds like a Slurpee, and I'm a little nervous. So what was it actually, as far as they know, transferred rectally from the different 
people's colons? Or would so they that, drink that, it? That's a, I don't know. that's a great question. I don't know, <laughs> don't know. exactly <laughs> how it was administered you back there. in the fourth century. <laughs> okay. Um, but if you look at the translation, wow. it, it, it ends up being uh, yellow dragon soup. Yellow dragon soup. Okay. We'll not have that if I go to a Chinese restaurant. Okay. <laughs> that <is correct. laughs> that's Be off careful. the menu. Okay. But it sort of disappeared for about uh, you know, 1,500 years or so. And then the first time it shows up in the English language, an English text, an English journal, was in 1958. There was a surgeon in Denver, Ben Eisman, and he had patients who had this entity called pseudomembranous colitis. And what that is is when C. diff, you mentioned this, but right, back, the bad bacteria, right? Like when C. we call it the short for C. Right, diff. sure. Mm-hmm. So when C. diff causes an infection of the colon, it has this classic manifestation in the colon where it leads to this very mucousy, yellow exudate within the colon. And he found that on a couple of patients, and they weren't getting better. Now, he didn't know at that time that C. diff caused that entity. Mm. What he knew was that his patients were having horrific diarrhea. He couldn't cure them. And he saw them on a rigid sigmoidoscope. He saw that, the, that this was going on in the colon. And what he did is he read in the veterinary literature that there were horses who had a very similar entity. And the way that they fixed those horses is by feeding those horses who had this sick colon healthy horse manure. Feeding them? I mean, they took it orally, as yes. far as you can tell. Okay. And those horses were cured. Wow. So what he did is that he took the spouses of these four patients. He took the healthy poop from their spouse and gave it to these four patients as an enema. And all four of the patients were cured. Wow. There had to be a lot of love there to... uh... That's correct. (laughs) But no, that's really really impressive. And, you know, one of the points I just want to bring out to listeners, because, you know, my... I think people that are following my podcast are obviously looking for the latest and the scientific, which is great. But I always like to bring up, because I've done also innovative things in my own practice, that sometimes you have to think out of the box. When your back's against the wall as a physician, scour the literature. Sometimes, and I know that that people don't realize this, sometimes some of even the most famous doctors here that have done world-class research went to some unusual places to to get the experience to do something very unusual. So, yeah, this this is really fascinating. So, wow. So it really came from the veterinary literature a little bit and this brave Dr. Eisman. I think you mentioned also in one of the reports I saw that in Scandinavia, actually, was it was the first – was that the first human one in 1983 or was that Dr. Eisman? Yes. Yeah. So, so Eisman is actually the first, but he didn't know that it was C. diff causing oh, okay. that – pseudomembranous colitis. He right. didn't know what the infection was. Right. It wasn't until the 80s that we actually were using a fecal transplant to treat patients who had a real C. diff infection. Okay. And the Scandinavian group was one of the first to, to do it. Thomas Barodi in Australia was one of the early pioneers, as well as uh, Larry Brandt here in the United States. But it remained on, on the fringes of medicine. I I'm mean, sure. we would go oh, to conferences sure. and, uh, yeah. and people would sort of Balk and laugh about right. That's ridiculous. Right. There was a well kept secret. But Dr. Chris, I want to just back up on one thing too, just so patients sure. really understand. Because I, actually, I knew a relative that had C. diff. I mean, it's pretty scary. How would a patient suspect they have it? I mean, a lot of the cases they've been on an antibiotic. Because I mean, antibiotics are still used, unfortunately, probably more frequently than needed. 
Um, and I know I remember from my training, actually, in infectious disease. That's part of my background. That you know, clindamycin was the one we really worried about. But it probably could happen with any antibiotic. Should a patient suspect it, or bring obviously his gastroenterologist or her primary doctor's following worry again? Because people can get diarrhea from uh, you know antibiotics in general or loose stools. When should they start to really worry? that this might be something more dangerous like C. difficile causing that pseudomembranous colitis again you know, what would you would how would you you know sort of teach patients and any doctors that are listening what to watch out for so you bring up a great point it's very common with almost any antibiotic that as a side effect you can get diarrhea and that is an entity called an antibiotic associated diarrhea it's very common Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that the patient has C. diff. The hallmark for C. diff is when you withdraw the antibiotic. So frequently a patient who has diarrhea on antibiotic, and if it's a mild diarrhea, they sort of, okay, I'll, they'll sort of plow through, they'll finish the course, and then that will, symptom will go away. But if diarrhea gets so uh, significant that it causes dehydration, it causes significant abdominal pain, you get fevers with it. That is when you know that there's something more nefarious that is going on. Back in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, we wouldn't even think C. diff when somebody has diarrhea with an antibiotic. You say, okay, that's antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Stop the antibiotic and let's watch and wait and see how you do. And the vast majority of people would go back to their normal selves. It's becoming more of an epidemic over the past 10 to 15 years because the C. diff strain has mutated. It's different. It's hyper virulent, oh, which that's means not it's a good causing thing. much more yeah. symptoms now than it ever has before. Wow. What I wanted to ask you on that too, you know, I, and I also, and, and the way it's also diagnosed is actually from stool samples, right? And you, you check with C. difficile toxin in a stool sample. If a, if a patient, let's say again, was really concerned and they went to their doctor you know, and, you know, suppose patients have to be their own advocate at times. They would maybe, again, if it was severe, have to ask, you know, can you check my stool for C. difficile toxin, right? It's not in the blood. It's in the, the toxins. Exactly. In... It's, a, it's a stool-based test to, to detect the actual toxin that causes all of the symptoms. The C. diff bacteria itself doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't invade. It doesn't do anything. It's only when it makes the toxin that causes all of those symptoms, and that's what we look for in the stool. We look for that toxin. Right. Okay. That's really good. I, I hope listeners are paying attention for family or friends or themselves. All right. Let's get to the next really down and dirty question. Can you explain a little bit how the fecal transplant is actually done? I think because, I think, again, get past the ick factor. You know, I know, I've read a few things in your work from Dr. Uh, Brown. That's where I went to college. Uh, Dr. Kelly. I mean, I'm just curious like, how you're doing it at Mount Sinai. And, you know, I've actually had two patients that went, well, we'll get into this later, who went to Europe to have it because it wasn't for approved indications here. But how do you actually do the transplant, if you want to sure. explain? So it has evolved over the past five to 10 years or so. so. When I started doing this at Mount Sinai seven years ago, we didn't have a stool bank. And I'm, bring, I'm saying that word stool bank because we, we, have, we have stool banks now. Yes, so right. you've heard of blood banks, you've heard of sperm banks. Well, now there are stool banks. But before we had that, I would ask the patient who was coming to see me with this recurrent C. diff infection. And I said, listen, we need to do a fecal transplant. And they would say, okay, well, who's going to be the donor? And then I would put it back to them. I would say, well, who do you trust? 
Who do you want to be who your can donor? You, who can you go to confidentially to ask this very personal request? And who do you think is healthy, right? I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to go to your Uncle Freddie, who uh, just, for whatever reason, the big drinker, and don't you worry about his liver and his health, right? <laughs> That's I mean, exactly it's, right. And, and maybe you want the guy at work who goes at every day at 8 o'clock in the morning. You know that he's doing his business in the bathroom. Yeah, he's regular. Yeah. Uh, you know, but can you ask so, him the big question, right? Okay. So, <laughs> so you had to... I, I put it to them, and they say, this is who I want to be my donor. My friend, my wife, my husband, right, my son, right, my sure. I then saw that patient in the office. I perform a history, a physical examination, and I do extensive blood work and stool tests to make sure that that donor is safe. Okay. To make sure that donor is that like would that be like you're checking for hepatitis, obviously HIV. I mean, all those type of things are screened. Absolutely, yeah. all the things that you would imagine if you wanted in a if you were going to uh, donate, donate blood. blood. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, but uh, almost 200 more tests are done wow. because it's wow. all all these stool tests that we have. To oh, do. right, right. And if you're a blood donor, I don't care if your great grandmother had some history of cancer because I don't think that by giving a blood donation. I'm going to transmit anything that could lead you to developing some other condition down the line. Right. But as, you, as we all know now, the microbiome has been associated with so many different diseases. God forbid, I don't, I don't want to transmit that susceptibility from that this donor could potentially develop this disease in some way, shape, or form in the future. And then maybe it's tied to the microbiome. Am I transferring that susceptibility to the patient? So, so we are uber careful right. with who the donors are. Right, so are. clearly, I mean, if you had a spouse or a close relative that you decided to pick, if they had a history of Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, those inflammatory bowel disease, that would rule them out Absolutely. instantly, right? Because they're not a good fecal fit. Okay. And so then, then what we used to do is the, the donor would come with the patient on the day of the procedure. Now, how, how am I administering this product? Well, right. The best way has been shown is to deliver it via a colonoscopy. So like on the tip of the colonoscopy, I mean, I've seen colonoscopy scopes. I mean, they're a scope. It's a scope. And what I'm trying, I'm delivering the product directly to the colon where it needs to be. So you're just like coating the, colon, the, colon, the colonoscope, essentially. Exactly right. Wow. Okay. So the patient comes in. They are prepped. They, they take their bowel prep the night before. They're ready. And then the donor has to provide me the drug, if you will, their donation, their stool. So they don't have to have a colonoscopy themselves. The, they just have to provide the sample, the donor. They just have to go to the bathroom and give me their drug. Okay. <laughs> On the day of the procedure. Yes. Well, it can't be from two weeks ago. No, it's got to be from that. It's got to be fresh. Well, at least this is what we thought. They have a pressure. They got to be able to come through. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I mean, there was a couple of times where I'd be knocking on the bathroom door. I'm like, are you okay? Because we need to, mm. we want to get started here. Yeah. Anyways, they give me their donation. I'd go to the microbiology lab here at Mount Sinai, and I would, underneath a hood in a micro lab with, with negative pressure, I would make what the text called the dirtiest martini. Oh, boy. I would mix the sample with normal saline to get it into a slurry, so that I could administer this drug yeah. through the colonoscopy channel right. in a liquidish form to put it into the colon. Wow. Uh-huh. This is as low tech as you can yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. People like natural, so okay. Yeah. Well, let me tell you that it, it works 
over 90%. That's what's fascinating. I saw in you know, some of your reports, I mean, there's just so few things in medicine that have that type of uh, effectiveness. And uh, obviously, you know, it takes a lot for somebody to get to this point to do it, but it's, it's really impressive. You know, something I heard once, so I'm just curious, and I'll run through a couple of things. You know, that I was reading, maybe it was in the New York Times somewhere like in the science section, that they were saying that, you know, a healthy 90-year-old can have a, a microbiome the same as a 20-year-old. Do, do you have any other proof of that? I mean, you know, I mean, do you, would you believe in that? Um, and do you think that's, you know, reflective of somebody's health, how good their microbiome is? So, yes and no. We have put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the microbiome. Right. And it's like an iceberg. We know only what we can see. We have about 10 to 15% of the knowledge of what we need to understand about the microbiome. Sure. And there's yeah, so much more that we don't understand. But what I will tell you is something interesting about how the microbiome develops and sort of as, as we age. When a human being is born, the first microbiome, the first bugs, the bacteria, microbes that the baby sees comes from the mother. Right. And it's really dependent on how the baby's born. Absolutely. Is That's why the vaginal deliveries are so important, step. right? I mean, if, if a mother can deliver vaginally, you know, again, you're probably familiar with this. And again, I deal, I, this is one of the questions I ask my patients at times you know, who are very sick. I mean, I know it, it, it sounds ridiculous because you're going way back. But again, the reports are coming out that people that were born through C-sections, obviously a lot higher risk, it seems, of autoimmune diseases and other problems because of that, again, what you're saying. So, exactly. okay, yeah. And so when the child, when the baby turns three, yeah. their microbiome in their gut is essentially the same as an adult microbiome. Okay. So all the major exposures that they get, what, where they live, where were they born, where, what kind of environment did they have, what kind of food did they get, did they get an antibiotic before the age of three, that can actually alter what their adult microbiome looks like. I'm just going to stop you for a second, too. It's so important what you just said, because, you know, in my field, too, I see a lot of allergy patients. and and even severe food allergy patients, which we have new treatments for. But one of the things which people constantly ask me is why are, like, for example, food allergies and other allergies so prevalent and, you know, really increasing in prevalence? And again, in my, the literature in my area of expertise is that they're showing that a lot of these kids have gotten antibiotics within the first three years of life, sometimes within the first year of life. And so they are really worried that this microbiome change is pushing it toward an allergic response. So again, you just kind of re-educated me that the first three years of life are really critical. So again, for all the listeners, obviously, if it's at all possible for the child not to be on antibiotics, uh, breastfeeding, you know, all of these things, so important. So I, thank you. I just wanted to get that important information in. It's, and it's it's important to highlight that absolutely. Yeah. So you're saying at three they have essentially their you know essentially it's almost like they say about kids' personalities. By three, they got their personality and they got their microbiome. <laughs> exactly. And it and that microbiome is remarkably stable over long periods of time. As we age, and whether I don't know what the number is. Is it fifty? Is it sixty? Is it sixty-five? I don't know. But as we age, what we can see is that the microbiome begins to become less and less diverse, less numbers, less whatever it may be in the way to, that you're looking at it. So as you age, you, your microbiome sort of is not as potent, perhaps, as it once was. Yeah. So a healthy 90-year-old 
Well, they're healthy. That's great. That's wonderful. Love that. I don't know if I can say that their microbiome is equivalent to that of a 20-year-old. My guess is that it's probably not. It's probably less potent, less diverse, less rich than that of a healthy 20-year-old. And you think because certain bacteria have died off? I mean, what, what, you know, it's... That's a great question. I don't know. No, what yeah. is it that... You know, uh, you know what's interesting? Know. You know, the, a person wrote a book. I'm blanking on his name. Uh, he wrote some... He's like sort of like a really well-known science writer. And he he's written a couple of really interesting books about the microbiome and especially about autoimmune disease. And, you know, what he's brought out, I think, which is very important, like he once even compared West Germany to East Germany, you know, before they merged. And that, believe it or not, in East Germany, where the living conditions were more rustic, dirtier in some ways, that population had a much more diverse microbiome and less like autoimmune disease compared to, you know, West Germany, which is, again, a little more like in the United States and other parts of, you know, Europe, where they were, quote, more hygienic, there was more autoimmune disease. So obviously where you grew up also and, you know, whether you grew up on a farm, that's been a big thing too. You know, you're exposed to the animals probably in there. Things, you know, really affect your microbiome. So, well, let's get to something else too, which is really, I, I brought this in because I thought it was so interrelated, even with the fecal transplants. Probiotics. So obviously we're trying to repopulate and get a good bacteria. Why can't a good probiotic do this? Or, I mean, do you think in the near future that's a possibility instead of even doing a fecal transplant? Not to take away from any of your amazing work. But no, why, no, but, not at all. But so, why, um, you know, why, why hasn't that been looked into? And you didn't even um, – I was just curious too. Again, when you have your patients with C. difficile, are you also putting them on a probiotic? I saw in some of the protocols you put them also on vancomycin, which is known to treat C. difficile. But, you know, where does – putting in the good bacteria also come in, or is, does it complicate things? So probiotics are complicated. Probiotics, the, what we know about them now, and they've been studied specifically in C. diff, okay. and it does not appear to be any benefit with probiotics and C. diff. Okay. Now, the problem is, where do probiotics come from? They come, most of them come from, so the classic one that we know is lactobacillus, right? right? right. Lactobacillus, there's a million different strains in there, and, and most of the probiotic blends will contain some sort of lactobacillus. But that's the lacto part. It's grown from milk. Ah, right. Do we have lactobacillus in our GI tract? Maybe, mm. but that's not a predominant would that be contraindicated in a patient that's lactose intolerant? You just maybe gave me an idea on this. I never even thought about that. Is, no, it... so it has no role in that, even though. <laughs> okay, lactose, just want to make sure because no I said, "Whoa, you know, it's uh, we're here. We're recommending probiotics to people, and realizing, gosh, you know, I'm lactose intolerant. That's not a good thing." Okay. No, no, nothing, nothing to do with lactose intolerance. Okay. But the problem is, is that that's not a predominant uh, species in our guts. It's right. not what we call a commensal bacteria. Right. Not a commensal that's... bacteria is one that's normally found in the GI tract of a human. So being. why is it so popular? Like, why are they putting that one in? I mean, why is that? That and I thought was a bifidobacter. Why are they? I know. I've, you know, why are they being used as probiotics? Is it just so really in the such beginning stages of? And does it? And do they work? Do you think they work for? Like, let's say, if you know a patient was going on, you know, typically as doctors, and I'm sure even general doctors now, patients going to go on an antibiotic. So doctors say, well, you know, hopefully a good doctor would say start a probiotic at the same time. Is there any, again, in your experience, does that make sense? So the problem with probiotics is that they are medical foods. Okay. So 
a medical food does not need to have nearly the Scrutiny. research behind it, yeah. the investigation behind it, or the regulation behind it that any kind of drug does, because medical foods really don't fall under the purview of the FDA. Right. So it's hard to know much about these probiotics because they haven't been studied in a much in a rigorous way. And you actually mentioned something great at the beginning. You, you talked about how many bacteria we have in our guts. And it's close to the level of trillions. When you get a probiotic blend over the counter at your local drugstore and you take it, you're taking like tens of maybe tens of billions of colonies of these bacteria. But that's multiple orders of magnitude below what is actually in the gut. It's dropping a drop of water into the well. It's not going to add that much to it. The way that fecal transplant is, I'm I'm putting in an entire, all of the, and I'm, again, a probiotic blend has a couple of strains, right? right, Maybe five or 10 at the most. Right. Uh, Or you can just get one that has a single strain. But when I'm giving a fecal transplant, I'm giving the whole thing. Okay. I'm giving the 150 strains right. or whatever it may be, or multiple strains, hundreds of strains of bacteria directly to I can effectively repopulate, or what I like to say is repopulate the gut <laughs> with okay. all the healthy stuff that's supposed to be there in the first place. Well, but let me ask you, Dr. Princeton, but so let's just say, too, as a gastroenterologist, you see a patient, and you know, typically a lot of times, too, sometimes they come in with what, diverticulitis. And typically what I've seen patients get ciprofloxacin, which is a pretty strong quinolone antibiotic. Would you typically recommend that they go on a probiotic at the same time or you think it makes no difference? I mean, just what, what do you do in your own practice? So there's been some data published on this and, and the pendulum keeps swinging. Some data says it's going to prevent diarrhea. Other data says it doesn't affect the rates of diarrhea that people get after taking an antibiotic course. So if I get a history of a patient that's had C. diff, and they're going to get an antibiotic for whatever infection it may be, I will recommend that they take a probiotic because I think it may help. It may help. But for the normal person who comes in, I'm not routinely recommending somebody to take a probiotic while they are on antibiotics That's because okay. the data behind it, it's not, it doesn't really show much of a difference. Have your own personal experience, or is it hard to say? I mean, I know as doctors we... You know, I don't know. I, I know a lot of times we like to see all those double-blind studies and everything, and then there's other times you're like, as we get experience in practice, we're like, oh, I don't absolutely. know. And, and of course, do the potential benefits outweigh the risk, which the risk seems low, I guess. I mean, I, I think there are some occasional issues with uh, probiotics, but for the most part, they seem to be pretty safe. So there's hardly any data to suggest that probiotic can hurt you. Right. Uh, but it just, again, it hasn't been really studied that much. So there, there probably are, just with anything, there are maybe some risks in taking a probiotic. But overall, I consider them to be very, very safe. But I will tell you this, in my experience with probiotics, and I tell patients to take them not infrequently, the most powerful drug in the world is placebo. Mm, okay. They don't like to hear that, though. <laughs> I know, I know. That's, that's the medical big secret. Okay, absolutely. don't let that out. But when people take something, that is they true. feel like they have control. They feel like they can do something, and that can empower them. That's true. I mean, that's been, you know, Herbert Benson, who was a very famous, I guess we have to call him a holistic doctor, but even though he was obviously conventionally trained at Harvard at the Brigham, and 
he used to, and I, I've attended some of his lectures and courses in the past, and he would sometimes show study after study, you know, where people given a placebo improved. I mean, or they did just as well as people who were on medications. I mean, and we all know this, you know, in any good clinical trial that's used as the comparison. And, you know, and he was a big mind-body researcher. So, yeah, not to negate the power, the power of the mind, you know, in some of these things. Now, I could, again, I could be wrong, but I thought I read about this recently, that somebody died from a fecal transplant. And I don't know if it was that some kind of... absolutely true. Right. I don't know if it was a homemade version or something. Can you, can you fill us in, like, what happened in this unusual case? Because as you mentioned, there's such a high success rate, obviously, and I'm sure done in professional places like, you know, Mount Sinai, your department. So can you uh, just tell the listeners what happened in that case? If... Sure. Uh, so this, this took place in a clinical trial, not for C. diff. Um, there were two cases where a bad microbe, a bad bacteria was transferred from the donor to two patients. It was a very nefarious, invasive, resistant organism that this donor, who was otherwise healthy, had within their gut. It wasn't causing them any problems. Was it a bacteria or fungus? I'm just curious. It was a bacteria. It was an E. coli Ah, bacteria. And it was a resistant bacteria, meaning that typical antibiotics would not have killed this bacteria. And this donor was part of a clinical trial, meaning that his stool, his or her, I don't know who the donor was, his or her stool, was given and put into a capsule formulation. Okay. And these two patients were enrolled. One was enrolled in a a clinical trial for hepatic encephalopathy, which is when you have really bad liver disease and you can become confused. Oh, that's a very sick patient to begin with. Oh, wow. Okay. And the other patient was, uh, had a bone marrow transplant. Oh, gosh. And they were trying to prevent some things going on with patients who have bone marrow okay. transplant. Uh, just so the listeners should know, those are both very sick patients, we, you know, yeah. that, again, obviously, I mean, they, they, the resistant E. coli obviously played some role in the death, but these are very sick patients. So what would it would have been screened out? It just got missed or they didn't test for the resistant so, E. coli strain? as of, um, I believe, January 1st, 2019, any product, any fecal product that is used in any kind of clinical trial needs to be screened for these bad bugs. Right. They need to screen it for uh, bad E. coli, bad Enterococcus, bad Staph aureus. We know that the bad bug MRSA. Now they're all being screened. We're screening donors to make sure they don't, they don't have those within the gut because if they do... Yes. Well, you can't be a donor. Right, that would seem obvious. But before 2019, it was not part of routine screening. So these two patients got product from prior, from 2018 oh, so the, banked stool. So they had from the bank. And okay. so, again, these two patients, very sick. Right. They're on a lot of medications. Yes, Their yeah. immune system is not right. good. It's, it's I not mean, even on a good path. day, you know, there could be problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But both of these patients got this very bad E. coli bacteria. One of them died from it, and the other one was able to be treated through it. Okay. So, I mean, I think it's really good that you cleared this up because, again, obviously people always, there's that fear factor in so many things. And it's nice when we have an explanation. I mean, as I said, these are extremely sick and vulnerable patients. They got a, a product that had not been screened, which now would go through the screening process and would be caught, hopefully, to put some to rest. And obviously with the 
stellar results that you've been getting at the Mount Sinai department, you know, kind of offsets that. So, okay, I'm glad there, you know, that, that cleared that up. Let me ask you about another area about fecal transplant and I hope you can shed some light. You know, I know again, your area is dealing with gastrointestinal diseases, but there's obviously been tremendous interest in dysbiosis treatment or fecal transplant in non-GI diseases such as autism. And I've even seen listed, you know, in some of the studies, fatty liver disease, diabetes, and obesity. And I just want to share one thing with you before you comment on this, if it's okay. I was at a conference uh, a few years ago where a very well-known neurologist, David Perlmutter, he's written some very famous books, Grain Brain. There are people who disagree with him, people agree with him, but he, he is a conventionally trained neurologist and um, believes very heavily in the microbiome and its effect on people's health and risk for Alzheimer's, all these things, which, you know, people are doing some interesting research on all of that. But I'll never forget, and, you know, he was actually a wonderful speaker, very dynamic, but at the end of his PowerPoint presentation, he shows a video of a 14-year-old boy that had autism. And you could just see from the interaction, really very, unfortunately, low-functioning communications, etc. And then he showed a video from like six months later where it was really remarkable. I mean, I won't say it was perfect because that would, that would be... That would be that would be unfair to you know give ridiculous or false hope to patients. But the young man was communicating better. It seemed a lot more um, responsive, and he had received a fecal transplant. So, just want your thoughts on if you're familiar with. If you're not, you know you don't have to go into this. But as far as anything maybe that's going on at Mount Sinai or studies anywhere regarding these other conditions, which have been listed, I guess in you know in the literature. So, the role of the microbiome for any number of disease states and every, any number of, of organ systems, it's right now, it's limitless, the possibilities. You can pick up a journal of any specialty in medicine or surgical subspecialty, and you will find people looking at the microbiome and how it relates to lung disease or heart disease or obesity or fatty liver disease, as you mentioned, and as well as autism. There are reports of FMT being used in autism, and there is potentially some sort of benefit that is seen there. Not in everybody. Right. Oh, but it's complicated. What I will tell you is that I, there will be studies, there's no question, and soon there will be clinical trials looking at FMT in autism on a much more global scale. Everyone is sort of very excited about this. And, and, and not just autism, for any number of conditions, because this is the next big, this is the new big thing in medicine. Now, it's not going to cure everything. No way. But there will be some conditions outside of C. diff where it's a home run. That's really exciting. And I, I want to just mention something. Again, this does fall, I think, within your, your special expertise. You know, again, the brain-gut connection, which, again, we're understanding more and more, you know, as people say, you know, the stomach, you know, the, the intestinal is almost like the second brain. I think also, you know, my area of immunology, I've had to deal with a lot, you know, the, the, the anti-vax people because they're so worried that this causes autism. And I got to tell you, my, quote, gut feeling is that it, it doesn't. You know, I mean, there's some other issues with that, but I don't really think that that's the case. But I'll never forget, too, back in the day, there were some reports probably a decade ago where some doctors, I think it was GI doctors, had to do procedures on an autistic children. 
and they had to give them secretin, if, I, if I'm correct, you know, which is again one of the um, GI hormones. And some of them had like responses, you know, with their autism, and that really, uh, I don't know if you remember reading that or hearing that, but so they're clearly, it's fascinating. There is some kind of makes sense of this GI connection to uh, behavioral mental health issue. There's no question that the the brain and the gut are intimately connected. Um, and we're really just sort of beginning to unsurface this and, and figure out what is actually going on. And it's very common, that, at least in, in the patients I see in the office who have abdominal complaints, is that frequently there is some underlying stress or anxiety or depression. And it's very hard for people to sort of grasp that sometimes. And what I, what I tell people or what I ask people is I ask them, have you ever been really nervous about something. You, you maybe had to go on stage or something sure. and got felt nervous and everyone gets those butterflies in their mm. stomach. Wh- what is that? I can promise you there are no butterflies in that stomach. Right. But in their brain, they're getting all these neurotransmitters being released because they're stressed, they're anxious, they're nervous. And will those neurotransmitters come down the nerves, down the GI tract, into the stomach, into the small intestine, into the large intestine, and lead to stomach and intestinal issues, Mm. that sensation of butterflies in the stomach or cramps or diarrhea or constipation. We see this all of the time. Mm. Uh, And understanding it is number one. Uh, But number two is what do you do about it? That's that's a whole separate uh, conversation that we can have. But there's no question that what you are discussing is real and true. We just need to understand it a little bit better. Let me ask you one other thing regarding food. And I'm sure you see your share of irritable bowel patients, you know, ones that don't have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or also colitis, but have what's called irritable bowel disease where they get bloating, constipation, or, you know, some form of diarrhea. Do you feel or do you recommend a certain type of diet? I found in my own practice, because again, I do a lot of nutritional and functional medicine, that, you know, taking them off of processed sugars, you know, gluten, even if they don't have celiac disease, and dairy and milk that these patients' irritable bowel seems to improve. Do you have a similar experience, or do you um, have any other thoughts on, on diet or what you recommend to your patients? I completely agree with you. I think diet is the hallmark of therapy for patients who have a irritable bowel syndrome condition. Again, these are patients who do not have any organic etiology. There's no inflammation that is driving their symptoms. You have to start with diet because the food that you eat, is going to be, that's what is going to have the first contact with your intestines and potentially lead to symptoms. And so diet is imperative to change and it can be very difficult to do so because we are creatures of habit. Us human beings, we like what we like. We don't like what we don't like. And it can be very difficult to change diet. It is hard, but they feel so much better, you know, I completely agree. And the processed sugars, gluten, even though we're not talking about a problem actually with gluten, we're not talking about patients with celiac disease where eating gluten can lead to inflammation. Well, gluten is wheat. You know, how do we make beer? We, We take wheat and we throw yeast on it. And the yeast ferments the wheat and you get alcohol, yay. But you also get carbonation. You get all that gas formation. So beer is naturally carbonated. It's interesting. Well, that's what happens in our gut, too. We have trillions of bacteria and microbes that will ferment certain foods that we eat. And that is a major trigger for people's report of gas and bloating. Right. Well, they're just breweries 
Right, right. I know that, that, that you really explained that really well. Boy, I'm gonna have to steal some of the uh, your explanation. What do you think? Also, about, I've never really fully understood the FODMAP diet. You know, this whole thing with the fructose oligosaccharides. Because there's, I don't know, the combination of foods that you're allowed and you're not allowed. Do you ever recommend that? I know there's a like some GI doctors at Hopkins that are very big on it, or Cleveland Clinic. I mean, do you find its place in what you're doing, or do you try to keep it simpler, like basically no so- wheat, sugar, milk, that kind of thing? It's, um, it can be very complicated and difficult to follow the low FODMAP diet. Mm-hmm. But the, the key thing about the FODMAP diet is that F word. It's the fermentable. fermentable so these are yes, foods that are point. highly fermentable, all those oligosaccharides and the polyols, which are the fats. Um, it can be incredibly restricting. But the key thing about this diet is this is not a forever diet. This is a trial. Mm. This is a three-week trial. Because if you get better with this three-week trial, then we know, okay, great. We found that diet can make you better. But then we have to reintroduce some of those foods back. Not all of them are going to cause symptoms. Some of them will. And, and this is where it needs to be done with somebody who's more versed in dietary modification. So seeing a dietitian and having a relationship with a dietitian can be incredibly important. And it's not for everybody. You have to get buy-in. The patient has to be willing to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Right. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, I see a lot in my practice. What, what really you can, as you describe, is the fermentable gut. And patients, when we put them on an appropriate diet, and we try to a little bit rebalance the microbiome, that we feel that they get so much better. I actually had two patients. It's really incredible. Like, you know, you read about these reports who essentially had what's called auto-brewery syndrome. Both of them, you know, they had got, it became a, you know, a police issue because, they had not been drinking. They uh, were eating high-carbohydrate foods that essentially fermented in their gut, and they got pulled over for a, a different reason. They weren't driving, you know, erratically or anything, too, and, but they, whatever it is, they didn't put their blinker on, and the, a police car pulled them over and asked them to do a breath test, and they failed. And, uh, you, you know, you, you hear about these cases, but, you know, when you see one or two in your office, it you know, really opens your eyes to uh, what's possible out there. Yeah, that, that is a phenomenal entity that exists, this auto-brewery syndrome. Right. But just, just so the listeners know, this entity is incredibly, incredibly rare. So don't be a concerned that you're going to have a, you know, uh, eat a piece of wheat bread and you're going to be driving around drunk. That, yeah. that does not doesn't happen. happen often, no. I know. But I read about the cases, though. You know, I mean, of course, they make the headlines. And then when I saw, like, these two patients, you know, I guess in my practice, because they it tracks patients that are interested in a lot of the, you know, functional yeah. medicine, holistic medicine we're doing. It was, it was pretty interesting. Gosh, we covered so much ground. You were terrific the way you explained things and, as I think, made it less frightening for patients that may have or have to need a fecal transplant and, and sort of opening up our eyes to the potential of that and explaining about probiotics to Dr. Greenspan. I have to thank you so much for making the time to come on this podcast which I'll have to name the power of poop, as you kind of labeled. And I'm really excited to see what comes up next. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.